Good morning. Oh, it's so nice to see everyone here. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Roxanne Borneman, and I'm a member of this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here and also online this morning. Since 1870, UU Wausau has served as a vital force, vital voice and force for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people, just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or your economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are very welcome here. We are currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. I don't think we're on TikTok yet. Not yet. And with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Um, Before we do that, I do have a couple of announcements, three of them. Today, after the service, the elementary RE group will be hosting a bake sale. All items are a dollar, and the proceeds will go to the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee's Emergency Response Fund to support people who have fled the violence in Ukraine. Another announcement, Early Risers is resuming. All women of the church are invited to gather for breakfast and conversation on Saturday, April 16th at 8.30 in the morning at the Garden Pancake House, 508 Grand Avenue. And then lastly, a fun announcement, the family Easter egg hunt will be held on April 17th. UUWASA families of all ages are invited to join us after our Easter service for, of course, a cooperative Easter egg hunt. And unlike a traditional egg hunt, we'll work together to find the eggs the UU Easter Bunny has hidden. And once all the eggs are found, everyone will get a few treats for their Easter basket. And with that, let us gather our hearts and minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You'll find the words printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light the symbol of our faith as we gather together. And now, join together in singing our opening hymn, number 347, Gather the Spirit. Separate fires, we 
join me in the church's affirmation, you'll find the words in your order of service. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other in our doxology. about me, one of my favorite parts of Easter is the jelly beans. I have never met a jelly bean I didn't like, even the black jelly beans. So this morning I want to share with you a story about jelly beans. It's been adapted from uh, Reverend Erica Hewitt's version of the Duke Who Outlawed Jelly Beans. And it begins, as stories do, with once upon a time in a faraway land, there was a royal kingdom very different from Wausau. They didn't have spam text messages, mosquitoes, repeated vowel wordle words, or any of the other little annoyances that we have here. The kingdom was ruled by a queen who felt a little overwhelmed about, by the demands of running a kingdom, so she met with the royal travel agent who got her a great deal on a two-month-long all-inclusive trip to Candyland. The queen packed her bags and called the people of the kingdom for a declaration. 
From the balcony, the Royal Herald read the declaration. Hear ye, hear ye. I'm going on vacation to frolic and make merry. While I'm away, my nephew, the Grand Duke Duane, will rule the kingdom. I'll send you all a postcard, hugs and kisses, the queen. With that, the queen went to her coach and pulled away, and out strolled her nephew, Grand Duke Duane. He took a deep breath and pronounced arrogantly, I have a decree to issue. Um, um, my decree is that everyone shall return tomorrow to hear my next decree. And with that, the duke turned on his heels and strode back into the palace. Back at their house, Beatrice and her moms talked about the Grand Duke's decree. That was the silliest decree I've ever heard, exclaimed Beatrice. Be easy on the duke, replied her mom, Emmy Lou. Her mommy, Jane, added, he's new at this. Maybe he just couldn't think of anything. Why doesn't he decree something useful, like banning people from coughing during the quiet, suspense-building part of movies, asked Beatrice. Some people do strange things to make themselves feel important. Maybe the Duke will relax into things, Jane replied. Well, I can't wait to see what his decree will be tomorrow. In fact, the whole kingdom was curious. The next day, everyone in the kingdom returned to the royal balcony, some of them out of obedience, some of them out of curiosity, and the rest because they had heard a rumor that the castle would be giving away free snacks. Maybe they heard about our bake sale later. Whatever the miscommunication, all the people listened expectantly as the Grand Duke strutted out onto the balcony and puffed up his chest. Hear ye, hear ye. I proclaim that too many jelly beans are being eaten. I love jelly beans, and the kingdom is eating too many. We could have a jelly bean shortage. And, henceforth, no one shall eat jelly beans without royal permission. I also proclaim you shall not request royal permission to eat jelly beans, as no one is getting permission to do so. Everyone looked at each other, bewildered. Could the Duke possibly be serious? From the crowd, a man chuckled loudly. Come on, Duke. We know you're a kid. Silence, hissed the Duke. I am very serious. Anyone eating jelly beans shall be beheaded. You shall return next week for my next proclamation. No one laughed now. Everyone returned silently to their homes. Many shook their heads in dismay, but no one ate a single jelly bean. It was a hard week for the kingdom. People had to turn to chocolate to satisfy their cravings for sweets, but they managed to get by without jelly beans somehow. One week, week, excuse me, one week, week later, Duke Duane appeared on the balcony to issue his next decree. Hear ye, hear ye. Today I proclaim that too many people are being impertinent to me. I believe people become sassy and disrespectful because of the books they've read. I've taken it upon myself to compile a short list. <laughs> and henceforth, no one will be allowed to read books that have not received the royal seal of approval. All who disobey me shall lose their heads. He's nuts, whispered Beatrice. I'm afraid that doesn't matter, sweetie. Until the queen returns from Candyland, the duke's word is law, stressed Jane. For now we should go home and gather up our books and send them to the castle for royal approval. But mom, what am I supposed to do without my books? I feel for Beatrice. The citizens of the kingdom were beginning to feel upset because the Grand Duke outlawed jelly beans, and as it turns out, all of the most interesting books. A week later, he announced another decree, this one much more heavy-handed than the others. The Duke puffed out his chest and strutted out onto the castle balcony. Hear ye, hear ye. It has come to my attention that people of the kingdom have been helping each other out. Trading goods instead of money, sharing extra food, providing each other with clothes, shoes, and tools. No one ever helped me, and I turned out well. So it will stop immediately. Everyone must learn to take care of themselves, bootstraps and all that. 
This arrangement will work best for everyone. Anyone found helping their neighbors will be thrown into the dungeon. Beatrice raged under her breath. It wasn't that bad to give up jelly beans. It was kind of bad to give up my favorite books, but I won't give up helping neighbors. Remember when we needed to get the car fixed and then Johnson's next door borrowed us their second car? And how about when Mommy helped them harvest their strawberries before that freak frost last June? We're all doing great. He can't throw me in the dungeon for helping Marcus with his math homework. He just can't. I'm afraid he can, but we'd never let him put you in the dungeon, assured Emmy Lou. Never. We run away to another kingdom first, declared Jane. Come back next week for another royal decree. Oh, but don't forget about the jelly beans, the duke reminded the crowd before heading into the palace. Throughout the village, everyone shook their heads in shock, murmuring about the lengths to which the Grand Duke had taken his power. He seemed oblivious to their distress, and certainly to their planning. The Duke didn't know, for instance, that later that evening, Beatrice had an emergency meeting with her friend Dexter. Like others in the kingdom, he felt outraged at the Grand Duke's most recent decree. Stirred to action, Beatrice and Dexter made a list. There's Daniel. He helps his neighbor, the kingdom shepherd, to find the one sheep who's always getting lost. And don't forget about Anastasia, said Dexter. Her family runs the food bank. I swear they can make a few loaves of bread to go so far in the community. And what about Ezra, who volunteers at the warming center? The Duke will absolutely put him in the dungeon. We love all these people. We have to do something to protect them. Soon, Dexter and Beatrice had listed several other people in the community who were in danger of being taken away. They were determined not to let their friends remain in danger, so the next day they gathered a group secretly in the woods, and Beatrice told them her plan. The next week, the Duke strutted out to the balcony, eager to make his next proclamation. The people gathered below, ready to meet his royal decree with their plan, codenamed Rebellious Resistance to Royal Wrongheaded Righteousness. Hear ye, ye, hear ye, it has come to my attention that someone in this kingdom found a jelly bean under their sofa cushion and, sofa cushion and ate it. The jelly bean, not the sofa. You are in big trouble as soon as I find out who you are. It has also come to my attention that there is an unapproved book circulating among the kingdom. I remind you that you'll be very sorry if you are caught reading Dinosaurs Love Underpants. However, what troubles me most supremely is that a number of people in this royal kingdom are defying last week's, last week's proclamation. One person found a hiker on the trail all banged up and gave them medical attention. Another was seen helping a kitten out of a tree. Later this afternoon, my royal guards will seek out all of you who dare help and put you in the dungeon. Suddenly, the Grand Duke heard voices rising from the crowd below. Hear ye, hear ye. Henceforth, I proclaim that all pet goldfish must be potty trained. Hear ye, hear ye. I'm very smart, and I'm pleased because I eat my favorite sandwich every day for lunch. Fried onion and grape jelly. I hear I can see that everyone must eat fried onion and grape jelly sandwiches at every meal. Hear ye, hear ye. I accidentally swallowed a grasshopper when I was two, and I turned out so well. I proclaim that all two-year-olds must swallow a grasshopper. Hear me, hear All these proclamations rained down on the Duke, and he began to cringe. A look of uncertainty crossed his face, and he held up a hand, but he was speechless. Potty-trained goldfish, fried onion and grape jelly sandwiches, two-year-old swallowing grasshoppers, and no burping dogs. The silly proclamations continued, and soon every person in the kingdom was giggling or chuckling. They laughed so hard their sides hurt, and they couldn't stop. Soon everyone was rolling on the ground, giggling and laughing, poking each other, maybe with some palm fronds, and laughing some more. 
I proclaim that giggling is against the law, yelled the Duke. Everyone roared with laughter except for the not-so-grand Duke. Guards, arrest everyone laughing. But the guards were laughing too, and the head guard called out with a giggle, off with their heads, off with their noses, send them to bed without toes. This was much too much for the Grand Duke. He had never been so humiliated in his life. So with his chest still puffed out as far as he could, the Grand Duke strode off the balcony, down the castle stairs, and into his coach. He rode out of the kingdom as fast as he could and was never seen or heard from again. And just in case you were wondering, that evening everyone ate jelly beans for dinner. And when the queen returned, she gave a decree of her own. Hear ye, hear ye. I proclaim the more we join together, the more our power counts. Let us remember when we pool our creativity, we can overcome obstacles. When we pool our energy, we can make great things happen. When we pool our resources and share our gifts generously, we support each other and our community. These small acts build upon each other to bring about peace, create justice, and spread love. And I decree that was our story for today. This morning, our children are going to be heading upstairs to the kitchen to make treats for our bake sale, so please bless them and those of us here and joining us from afar with May Peace Surround You. You'll find the words in your order of service. The mission and ministry of UUWASA is made possible by the generous support of its friends and its members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, we've placed an offering basket at the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift with your credit card or debit card. Thank you for your support.
I'd like to invite all of you now to join me in a spirit of prayer and meditation. I want to encourage you to start by putting your feet flat and firm on the ground. If it is your custom to pray or meditate with your eyes closed, I welcome you to close them now. Let's take a scan of our bodies. Start with the air on the top of your head. Take a breath and relax your shoulders. Take another breath deep into your stomach. Let us pray. Be gracious to us, O holy life. For even though our hearts know praise and thanks, we reel in distress. We watch as war and famine claim the lives of thousands. We offer all the compassion we can muster towards those within our reach, people whose days are dominated by pain and suffering. When we look within ourselves and see the sorrow that fills those inner places of despair, We know that the number of our days are beyond our control. And so we pray and dream that life will shine upon us, that love will save us, and that we have the courage necessary in this time and in this place to be bearers of unstoppable compassion. Hear now our prayers for those in pain and need. For all those whose strength fails because of misery, the prayers we can find words for, and those that rise up through the silence within. Let us call to mind the joys and sorrows in our lives, and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Please stay seated for our prayer hymn number 1031, filled with loving kindness.
Our first reading this morning is a poem entitled, All My Friends Are Finding New Beliefs by Christian Wyman. And the poet writes, All my friends are finding new beliefs. This one converts to Catholicism and this one to trees. In a highly literary and hitherto religiously indifferent Jew, God womps on like a genetic generator. Paleo, keto, zone, South Beach, bourbon. Exercise regimen so extreme she merges with the machine. One man marries a woman 20 years younger and twice in one brunch uses the word verdant. Another's brick-fisted belligerence gentles into dementia. And one, after a decade of financial feints and teases, like a sandpiper at the edge of the sea, decides to die. Priesthoods and beasthoods, sombers and glees, high-styled renunciations and avocations of dirt, sobrieties, satieties, pilgrimages to the very bowels of being, all my friends are finding new beliefs. And I am finding it harder and harder to keep track of the new gods and the old loves and the days have daggers and the mirror's motives and the planets turning faster and faster in the blackness and my nights and my doubts and my friends, my beautiful, credible friends. Therein ends our first reading. with all our hearts. Won't you tell me who you are? As we come to learn 
the gifts we each can give. We offer up in turn a better way to live. The stories that we share will show us how to care. You can help me do my part when you tell me who you are. Fill the world with grace when you call me by my name. take as my sermon text this morning, the 19th chapter, beginning in the 28th verse from the Gospel according to Luke. I don't know if you all have watched Jesus Christ Superstar lately, so let me set this reading up for you, okay? So prior to this, Jesus has been traveling around the Fertile Crescent, preaching and healing and teaching. And this is when Jesus makes his last trip into Jerusalem. And so he's received with great uh, festivity and people, as the scriptures tell us, laid palms on the ground. And so this is what led up to that very moment. So put yourself a long, long time ago, 33 AD, and imagine you're poor and destitute, because no one likes to imagine that they're a Roman soldier, right? So imagine you're poor and destitute, and you're watching this preacher, this teacher, arrive, and there's all this festivity. And the gospel writer says, After he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage in Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples saying, Go into that village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find there a donkey that has never been ridden. I want you to untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who are sent departed and found as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said, Why are you taking our donkey? And they said, Because the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the donkey, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice, for all the deeds of power that they had been saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they said to him, they said, teacher, you need to order your disciples to stop. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. And so as he came near the city, Jesus wept over it. There it ends the reading. So it seems to me that if you look around at the world, you will start seeing that human beings are deeply conflicted and confused about how we're supposed to live. Exhibit A, pick and save. 
So when you walk into the store off Bridge Street, you are met by fruits and vegetables, fresh, organic produce, fragrant, it's colorful, it's textured, just a teeny, tiny little part of the store. And then you hang that right, and once you get past the meat and the hygiene products, as far as the eye can see, for acres and acres, processed food. Ramen noodle soup, Oreo cookies, Cap'n Crunch, Fruit Loops, Little Debbie's Cakes, soda, Snickers, 5,000 kinds of chips. Maybe even some of that creamer that turns our coffee into a liquid candy bar. There's all those microwave dinners with enough sodium to clog two people's arteries. Exhibit B. Across town, just right down the street here, at the intersection of 4th and Division, what will you behold? There's a small strip mall with a 24-hour McDonald's in the same building as what? An anytime fitness gym. Exhibit C. Last weekend I was in Milwaukee and I spotted a yard sign that read this, quote, All are welcome here. Isn't that a lovely thing? Bear in mind that the sign that said all are welcome here was in the front yard of a house in a neighborhood where the average home costs just about $2 million. I feel very welcome. So my question that I want to ask this morning are, what are we supposed to do in a world that contains lofty dreams alongside weighty realities? I was thinking about this question when I saw what may be a mysterious harbinger of the age to come, known as goblin mode. Have any of you ever heard of goblin mode? I'll teach you about it. So the other day I was catching up on some news when I stumbled on a headline in the British newspaper, The Guardian, and it read this, quote, slobbing out and giving up. Why are so many people going goblin mode? So goblin mode, the journalist notes, is the result of humankind's collective fatigue of living under the constant cloud of pandemic. The strain of inflation, political polarization, a refugee crisis, and now a war in Europe. It's sort of a reaction to cottagecore. And if you don't know what cottagecore is, cottagecore are those hyper-edited photos that people post on Instagram and Facebook. And you know the photos I'm talking about. They're glossy images of people seemingly happy in their absolutely fabulous homes, those elated people lounging cheerfully in vacation destinations that we would have to mortgage our houses to be able to afford. We saw a similar version of Cottage Core very shortly after the pandemic started. You might remember this for those of you on social media. Remember right after the pandemic set in and everybody was real excited to spend time with their family? Do you remember being excited about it? Do you remember how no longer you would ever want to return to that? Anyways, I'm a parent. Maybe you, maybe you need young kids. But anyways, so a similar version of this happened after the pandemic started. And if you remember, it was people posting pictures, my family too, posting pictures, smiling with their kids around the dining room table or in a bedroom that we've turned into an office. Or people posting smug images of their flawlessly new organized home offices or post detailing their obnoxious plans to learn a new language, or their Gwyneth Paltrow Goop-approved weekly meal plan for their children. They dress in designer clothing. 
So what happens in goblin mode is goblin mode watched all of that for just about three years, and goblin mode said, oh, heck no. What I'm going to do is I'm going to embrace my total depravity. I'm going to spend all day in bed watching 90 Day Fiance on mute while endlessly scrolling through social media, pouring the end of a bag of chips in my mouth, and downing Eggo toaster waffles with hot sauce over the sink because I cannot bear to be bothered to put one on a plate. And the only time in goblin mode you leave your house is whenever you leave your house in your pajamas and socks only to get a Diet Coke from the McDonald's drive-thru. There's a little bit of autobiography in that, but (laughs) if goblin mode sounds strange and you're curious to know, I wonder how many people in this church have ever goblined out. I encourage you to, to just turn and take a moment to look at your neighbor this morning if you want to see a goblin. So what does it mean to be a good human in a world where those kinds of things exist side by side? On the rock band The Killer's newest album, they have a song on there called The Getting By. And in it, the singer wonders whether the cultural weight we put on living our best life is really a lie. And that what most of us have the time and energy for is, as the title of the song says, just getting by. Now the question at the end of the song asks whether we have what it takes to keep holding on for the times when the getting gets good, because often the getting has just gotten. Last week, I could not put down Sally Rooney's amazing, wonderful new book. I can't recommend it enough. The book is entitled Beautiful World, Where Are You? And so in the book, there are two friends, two, two young ladies, and they wrestle with reality as they grow up as they fall in and out of love and try to make their way in this terrible and in this beautiful world. And they both struggle with illness, both bodily and mentally. Their lovers struggle with fidelity. They fight with their parents. They mourn losses. They have difficulties at work. They wrestle with their privilege. They try to do good. And like us, they are horrified by the news. They struggle with their faith. They indulge and they retreat into substances. In other words, we watch them get by. Years ago, the late great preacher William Sloan Coffin, he stood before his church on a Palm Sunday just weeks after his son had died in an accident. And Coffin, like all of us have, or all of us are, or all of us will, he was struggling to get by. And so he stood before his congregation and he said, I want to thank you for the support that you've given me and my wife in this terrible time. He went on to tell them that the support they gave him, at least in his mind, is the very same kind of support that God gives everyone. And he said God's support goes like this. Minimum protection alongside maximum support. All of us struggle to get by with minimum protection from tragedy alongside, at least we hope, Maximum support in the form of love and faith and friends, which leads us to our topic this morning, Palm Sunday. If I may be so bold as to summarize what I think Palm Sunday is, I'd say it's about God's persistent love in the face of the brutality humankind is capable of. So traditionally, Palm Sunday is two things in one. It's about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem 
where he is first met by cheers of the poor and the downtrodden. People who see in him hope for those who drew the short straws in life. People who know a thing or two about suffering and goblin mode. But Palm Sunday is also called Passion Sunday because just as soon as the celebration ends and Jesus is arrested, the very same people who gathered to cheer, they turn on him. And what do they do? They spit in his face. They throw rocks in his eyes. In some, it is a story about minimum protection alongside maximum support. And so what the history books show us is that just as Jesus is entering into one side of Jerusalem, the Roman governor Pontius Pilate is entering at the very same time from another. But those two scenes couldn't have been more different than the other. So put yourself in this mind again. Jesus rolls up on a borrowed donkey. He rolls up on a borrowed donkey, which is just about as cool as showing up to your senior prom in a rusty Chevy Cavalier. And on the other side of town, Pilate is rolling in on essentially a Clydesdale. He's wearing Armani and a Rolex, and he's flanked by Roman soldiers decked out in bejeweled armor as they hand out dollar bills and flasks of wine and hunks of fresh warm bread. They're setting this up so that we get into the mind to understand that what we're about to see is a tale of the haves versus the have-nots. And you can say what you want about Palm and Passion Sunday, but there is no denying that it's a story that doesn't let any of us off the hook. Most of us, whenever we imagine ourselves in times like this, we always like to think that we would be on the side of justice, that we would be gentle and we would be lowly that we'd have nothing to do with this evil Roman Empire. But it's stories like this, in the words of the philosopher Blaise Pascal, that they remind us that the world divides itself between saints who know themselves to be sinners and sinners who imagine themselves to be saints. Palm Sunday is a meditation on humankind's arrogance alongside its obvious inability to save itself. And if you'd like an example of what I'm getting at, consider a recent UN report that shows that there is more than enough food produced to feed everyone 1.5 times the amount that everybody on the planet needs. Moreover, what the UN discovered is that right now we have the means to be able to take all the food needed in the world everywhere that it needs to go. And yet, 821 million people are listed as chronically undernourished. This is a solvable tragedy that demonstrates humankind's obvious inability to save itself. You could go on to make similar points about war, about infant mortality, about maternal health in developing nations, and on and on. And in this morning's reading, we see that as Jesus approached the city, what did it say? It said he wept. And every time I read this passage, every year when I open it up to this portion, I often wonder if Jesus rode into Wausau, if he would stop and weep for our city. I wonder if he would weep for Kiev or Kabul. And whether you're a Christian, atheist, or somewhere in between that spectrum, the fact is the world Jesus died to save still resists its salvation. The world we live in is full of attack and counterattack. It's full of injustices and invasions, a world of moral horror in which common sense and wisdom are swept away by fears 
to primal to master. Perhaps you think I'm just exaggerating, and if you think that, you're right. But as the much-missed Peter Gomes once said, exaggeration is what we ministers do because exaggeration lets preachers make tiny points so large that small people like us can finally see the point. The point and the purpose of the church is to preach the truth, full stop. That's our calling. And sometimes I find reminders of this in surprising places. And just the other day, I found a reminder of what the church is called to do, and of all places, the New York Times, written by Ezra Klein, a self-described non-religious Jew. And so in the article, Klein discusses the unraveling, at least in his mind, of small-L liberal ideas, small-L liberal ideas like universal human rights, individual flourishing, and the consent of the governed, ideals rooted and classical Christian ethics. And so what Klein does is he laments the loss of the ties that in his mind once bound us to one another. And he laments the fact that right now we have a metastasized polarization that rips families and neighborhoods and cities apart. And Klein asks this, I'm going to quote him. He asks, can the constant confrontation with our failures and deficiencies produce a culture that is generous and forgiving? And can it be concerned with those who feel not just left behind, as many in America do, but left out, as so many Ukrainians have felt for so long? End quote. The answer to those questions, Klein writes, may be in the strange Christian worldview that renders all things equal by recognizing that all of us are just getting by and broken, rather than insisting that all of us must be great. So Klein's point is that whenever we accept our limitations and brokenness, what it does is it frees us from trying to live our way into a glossy Instagram post so that we can get on with what most of us should be doing, being humble, asking for forgiveness, forgiving, and sowing understanding. Moreover, it asks us to suffer with the suffering, to give heart to the heartlessness in the world. And so Palm and Passion Sunday are reminders to see suffering not as if it's a play or a movie, but as something that we share in. Next Sunday on Easter, what we get to do is we get to celebrate spring and miracles, new life and hope. But today, the church asks us to share in the suffering of the world, to weep at it, to weep at it like Nelson Mandela wept, like Martin Luther King wept, like Dorothy Day wept, as refugees today are weeping, and as the caregivers in our city weep as they care for the hurting in our midst. They ask us to weep at the brokenness of what is meant to be whole, to see a thing as it is meant to be and to experience as broken and fractured and shattered, but to not stop looking at it and to see it for what it is. Part of all that is broken in the world the suffering and the indignity and the humanity. There is no denying that we are confused and conflicted about how we're supposed to live. But as Unitarian Universalists, we believe with defiance that even though we are broken and limited, that if there is love in our heart, then we must be prepared to have our plans interrupted. In other words, we must be ready to be surprised by God, 
by the spirit of life that's always improvising. And as it says in the 121st Psalm, the eternal will protect that our calling as people of faith comes from unexpected directions and that it confronts us with love's promise, with tasks to perform, and with people to care for. Amen. I invite you to rise now in spirit or body and join me in our closing hymn, Let There Be Peace on Earth. It's an insert in your order of service. someone this morning, I invite you to take their hand. If you're here alone, please reach out with your heart. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear, may it lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Please have a seat, relax, and enjoy the postlude. See you soon. <laughs>